Let me encourage you to open your, your book of Revelation and read the next vision of John, which is vision two, and it will take you from chapter four through chapter eight, verse one. So if you just put your uh, video on pause and read that, and then come back um, to the teaching. All right, now what we have in the second vision is human history from God's point of view. And this differs from anything that you will get in any kind of history class in any university or college, because it's God's point of view of history. It's, a, it's going to have the same events, but it's going to look different. And so the first thing that we have is in chapter four is John being lifted up to this heavenly perspective. And from heaven, you see that from God's point of view, the most important event in history happened a long time ago, and that was the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus actually was prophesied in the prophet Daniel, and I would like to read Daniel's description of that in his vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And we know that happened because Jesus himself described it prophetically. Okay, and that is in Matthew 16, verse 28. And he said to his disciples, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now what that means is, not that he's going to be coming back in the lifetime of his disciples, but that he is taking his kingdom. He is ascending to the Father. In other words, Jesus is referring back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14 in that prophecy. And so what you read in Acts chapter 1 is literally the fulfillment of this prophecy. But now John is being lifted up into a heavenly point of view and seeing this from a heavenly perspective, you see. And so what he sees, and it's not literally that he's seeing Jesus come to the Father's presence. He's seeing it in dream language. He's seeing it symbolically. He's seeing it in, a, in the way that God, <coughs> God wants him to see it, which is, that Jesus will be receiving a scroll. And uh, what's the scroll? Well, the scroll is the title deed of the world. So this is a symbolic way of picturing Jesus receiving ownership rights. This is Jesus being given the ownership rights of the whole earth because he's the only one who has paid the price. Okay, so... If you want to get a picture of how title deeds were uh, 
were given so that a new owner uh, would would receive property rights, um, you can turn to Jeremiah 32.11, and there's a, a very good example of how title deeds were done in those days. It wasn't by uh, an eight and a half by 14 legal size document. It was a scroll. And the, the official scroll was um, with, with the actual uh, property described on it, was then rolled up and sealed with a seal. And legally, the only time that that seal could be broken was when a new owner had paid the price and was now the new, the new owner, and he was going to open the, the uh, scroll to, to sign his name on the dotted line. So this, the breaking of the seal was symbolic of the change of ownership. You see that. Now, there was another scroll uh, that had exactly the same writing, all of the same descriptions. Uh, it did not have a seal. So anybody could open that and read what was on the real seal. But the fact that Jesus is handed the scroll with the seals uh, it symbolizes the fact that this is, this is a true change of legal ownership of the whole world. Uh, why does it have seven seals instead of one? No title deed ever had seven seals. But now we're getting back into the number seven and the meaning of the number seven. And so what we're, what we're seeing is that, that there is a, a span of time between Jesus receiving that authority, which happened at his ascension, and then the actual signing of his name on the dotted line, and then he comes and takes possession. So that's the history that we've had over the last 2,000 years, you see. Um, it's, it's, it's pictured as tearing off of the seals. And we're moving from one through seven. And when we get to seven, that's going to symbolize that which is perfect has come. And so seven means Jesus comes back at that point. But what we're seeing now is history moving up to that conclusion. And what do we find? We find that each seal expresses an aspect of what's going to happen in history. And the, the first four of the seven seals is the four horses. Now, the four horses are very, very familiar. If you look at the four horses, they will remind you uh, of the teaching of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. Um, in fact, they're the very same things that Jesus describes. And so we're, the meaning of the four horses is anchored in the teaching of Jesus himself. Um, chap chapter 24, verse 4. In fact, let's start at verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. 
So that what we what we're seeing is Jesus picturing the coming of the kingdom as travail. And there a woman in travail has much agony and much pain, but she's moving towards something that will make it all worthwhile. That's the way Jesus wants us to see the coming of his kingdom. There are going to be labor pains. And the labor pains are going to take the form of four things uh, that will cycle through, especially the latter part of this next season of history. There's going to be waves of this, okay? So it begins with a spirit of conquest. The white horse is the spirit of conquest. Wherever we see a white horse, it means conquest. All right, but this is not Jesus conquering. These are false messiahs. These are false leaders. These are false rulers of the world who get it into their heads that they are, they have the right to rule the world. And so they, they are going to be filled with the spirit of conquest, and conquest will lead to war. War will lead to famine, and all of it will lead to massive deaths on a vast scale. Well, we've already seen that, haven't we? We've seen many people through history, recent history especially, Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, you, you know, you can just go through it. Communism, trying to rule the world. Now we have Islam, trying to rule the world. We're, we're, we're moving through this period of false conquest that is going to create a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. The only one who has paid the price to rule the world is Jesus. All the others are false emperors, and they are, um, they, they have already come. In other words, these, we've already seen what these birth pains look like. And Jesus tells us, don't assume that just because these things are happening, that uh, it's going to be just another three and a half or seven years, and, and he's going to be coming, uh, returning. No, he's saying these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. When you see these things, they have to happen. Uh, but don't be alarmed that Jesus is coming back soon, necessarily. Soon meaning in the next few years. All right. After the four, horse, four, four horsemen, we see... Um, the uh, fifth seal is that there's going to be persecution of Christians. In other words, Christian persecution is going to increase and it's going to be getting stronger and stronger. And that's exactly, again, what we see today. We see Christian persecution around the world stronger than it's ever been, even in the times of the Roman Empire. And far more Christians are dying today. Uh, in the name of, for the, the cause of Christ than died in the Roman Empire. And then uh, 
we see the sixth seal, which is a great earthquake. Um, this great earthquake is described in Hebrews 12, 27, Haggai 2, 6, and Zechariah 14 and verse 4. Let's just read the Zechariah passage because it's the most descriptive. Um, let's, uh, let's see, let's start here. In ch chapter 14, verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. All right, so this is the very last earthquake. This, this, is, a, this is a big a biggie. And it, it looks almost as though the earthquake starts in Jerusalem. And we're seeing, as we go through the prophecies, we see it increasingly Jerusalem becomes the center of things that happen. And, and that will be more true of the blessings flowing throughout the earth during the millennial reign of Christ. Jerusalem becomes the center Jerusalem really is the center of things from God's point of view. It's where, it's Mount Zion. It's where Jesus is going to reign from in this earthly kingdom. But the earthquake, the great shaking uh, is going to, it looks like to me, it's, it's going to start from there. Then finally we come to the seventh of the seals being torn off, and it says there was silence in heaven. Well, what you have, I believe, uh, just picture a woman in in a hospital bed, and and she's receiving the baby that she's given birth to. Um, as as a father, I went through this uh, three times, and when you when you when you go through that the, the terrible struggle of giving birth you know we men we when we're with our wives we we struggle with this also and uh when it when the baby is finally delivered it's it's an enormously relieving joyful uh feeling i mean there's nothing quite like it it's 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 a it's an enormous peace that descends on you. And that, I think, is what John is, is describing here. The peace of Christ that, that comes after all of this has passed. Now, I want to I bring a, a point of view here that I don't hear anybody else bringing today uh, in interpreters of the book of Revelation and this, this is going to be from Alfred Edersheim, um, who was a, a real scholar, a Jewish scholar, um, who wrote a great deal about the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. <clears throat> and this particular book is about the temple, its ministry and services, as they were at the time of Christ. Okay, so I think... Very few people have the scholarship that Alfred Edersheim 
uh, brings to the table. And um, what he says, I won't have time to, to go into the background of this, but what he says is that the likelihood is that John was of a Levitical background. In other words, he spent a lot of time in the temple. And he, he was one of those, either a Levite or a priest. He had his times of going to the temple and, and being one of those that was worshiping and in prayer in the temple. Um, that, for example, is why he was allowed into the home of the high priest uh, when Jesus was being tried there by Caiaphas. But Peter was not. Uh, it says that the high priest knew John and was well acquainted with him. So there's evidence that John was of a priestly lineage. Okay, so what that does is it explains why it is that in the book of Revelation, so many of the images reflect uh, the temple and the services in the temple. And one of the things that it reflects is this silence. Uh, the silence in heaven is something that uh, John was well aware of because it happened every day. In the temple, there was, um, from, the, from the opening of these great gates of the temple, uh, and then all the sacrifices and all of the singing and all of the, the musical instruments and the trumpets and, and, uh, the activities of the priests who are carrying all this, the lighting of the lights and the showbread and all of the rest, all of it culminates in the lighting of the altar of incense in front of the Holy of Holies. And what this symbolizes is that without all of this, the activities of the temple, there would be no possibility of a clear relationship between us and God. And that relationship is symbolized more than anything by the altar of incense. So when the altar of incense was lit, it's the culmination of every day's activities in the temple. And this is how he, uh, Alfred Edersheim describes it. It is this most solemn period when throughout the vast temple buildings, deep silence rested on the worshiping multitude while within the sanctuary itself, the priest laid the incense on the golden altar and the cloud of odors rose up before the Lord, which serves as the image of heavenly things in this description. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. So you see, Alfred Edersheim believes that John was getting this vision, this picture of silence in heaven from the temple service, or God was giving that to him from his experiences in the temple. All right, now I've said that the book of Revelation is full of promises, and we really want to emphasize the promises. I believe God gave the visions so that we would have the promises. The promises are the reason for the visions. Uh, and so as we move through from four through seven, the whole of chapter seven is full of promises. In other words, God takes this opportunity between the sixth and the seventh uh, 
to give promises that are especially for people during the time of tribulation. All right, so that's the very end. He says the, uh, the, the worst tribulation in world history is going to be then, but he wants to make sure his people get their promises about that. So what are the promises? First of all, his saints will be marked, and the purpose of the marking is protection. All right. So often when I hear this passage uh, uh, described, people are debating whether this is for Jews or whether this is for the Gentile church. And what I want to say is, let's stop talking that way. That's the way replacement theology people talk. Is it for them or for us? And what I want to say here is, no, the church is grafted into Israel. We are one. Everything that is for Israel, all the covenants of promise, flow up through Israel and into the branch of the Gentile church. And we all have the same promises. So let's stop talking about this debate about Jew or Gentile, because we are truly one in Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians 2, and that's what it means. All right, so all of us, all of us who are in Christ will be marked, and that means protection. And the second promise is this, those who go through the tribulation, because God wants them there, and he wants them praying, and he wants them being their, the royal priesthood that he's appointed them to be on earth, the watchmen on the wall. And, if, and because they've been appointed to this difficult time, they will have a special place of honor and closeness and intimacy with the Father in heaven for all eternity. Now that is a promise. I believe that as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, it's, it's a good thing if we would focus on the promises. So that's what we're going to do in vision number three.